Good morning. Good morning. You guys can find your seats. And as you're finding your seats, just a reminder that our summer baptism is coming up. That'll be on the 22nd. If you are interested in being baptized and you haven't let me know yet, please do so. We actually have quite a number of people getting baptized this year. I'll be sending out an email this week to those families who have members of their family, actually quite a few children, who are being baptized with all the details and information. Unfortunately, we are unable to open it up to the entire church, but it is certainly open up to all those uh, who are being baptized and their immediate families, and uh, we'll just get a head count and all that will take place this week. Well, again, good morning. This morning, we are finishing out our series of studies in the book of Revelation. We find ourselves in chapter 22 and in verse 7. And the message this morning is a very simple message. It's the closing of this book, and in closing this book, sort of an epilogue, sort of John just having received and given us this vision which we've studied for a year, now just closes the book with an encouragement that is ultimately the most important encouragement from the entire book. Jesus Christ is coming soon. Amen? Let's pray. Lord Heavenly Father, we thank you because you have promised us not only that you would come and you came, not only that you would die and be raised to life, which you have done, not only that you would ascend into heaven, but that you would come again to judge the living and the dead, and that we know that you are coming soon, and that message was given 1,900 years ago. And as Pastor Joe referred to in the baby dedication, we are in certainly the last days. That, there's no doubt about that. Peter made that clear when he quoted Joel 2 in Acts chapter 2, but we're in the last of the last days in that we are now 2,000, nearly 2,000 years away from the beginning of the last days. And Lord, we don't know how much more time we'll have on this earth, whether we should go to be with you through natural death or be raptured into your presence, as we've talked about in our studies. But we know that one day we will be in your presence. And, and when we are, we, we need to have made these years on this planet count. We need to set our hearts right and may this last final study do that exact work. May we set our hearts right. May we calibrate our hearts to everything in our life surrounding this one central truth that you're coming again and you're coming soon. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, unlike most of the studies in this book, this is a very easy chapter to teach. There, there's not a whole lot of confusing things or visions or, or things that would, would maybe be difficult to understand or explain. But the simple truth that Jesus Christ is coming again and that he's coming soon is denied by most of the world. Let's be honest. Throughout the centuries, most people think of it as a fairy tale. Many Christians don't take it literally. Many Christians assume it's just some kind of silly promise that God made, but he, he didn't really mean. But Bible-believing Christians understand that the, the Word of God is powerful. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It's a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. It, it, it's more than just words on a page. It's the promise that we have of eternal life, and it begins with this moment at the end of this book where we recognize we need to be prepared. And Jesus promises that those that read this revelation will prepare their hearts because that's exactly the point of this revelation. It's not just so that you can amaze your friends and astound your co-workers with your understanding of last day's prophecy. <clears throat> 
It isn't given so you can write a book, sell lots of books, make a lot of money, and predict things before they happen. It is the revelation or unveiling of Jesus Christ. It reveals Jesus Christ to us in ways that perhaps we have never experienced or understood. So when we read in verse 7, the the promise that he's coming soon starts out in verse 7 where we read, In chapter 22 of the book of Revelation, Behold, I am coming soon, quoting Jesus. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy in this book. Very simple exhortation that those that keep the words of the prophecy that's in this book are blessed. Do you want to be blessed? Say amen. Amen. If you want to be blessed, then you have to keep the words of the prophecy of this book. What does that mean? Well, it means not just believing that these words are true, which again, I've already shared, most of the world denies. Not just believing that the words are true, but preparing ourselves for their fulfillment. If you knew that tomorrow some significant world event was about to take place, if you knew that that was going to happen tomorrow morning, Your whole life, the decisions you make today and over the next 24 hours would be affected greatly by whatever event you knew was about to take place. Now, we don't know the future, and yet we do because God's word gives us prophecy and tells us not in specifics that we should be bold and arrogant about, but certainly generically or or generally we understand Christ is coming again. Amen? And so if that's true, whether it's in your lifetime, next week, Monday morning, or a year from now, we should be living our lives with respect for that truth, understanding that truth, believing that truth. And if we do, then we're going to prepare our hearts. Hey, listen, I'm as guilty as the next person. We get in a groove. We go through our lives. We think, oh, well, you know, Monday, Tuesday, oh, Wednesday, Wednesday, midweek Bible study, Thursday, Friday, oh, Saturday, Oh, Sunday, back to church. You just kind of go through the motions. We don't really stop to think one day, all of that's going to be wonderfully interrupted. I believe by the rapture of the church, but ultimately by Christ coming again. And when that happens, all of our plans, whatever they were, won't matter at all. When I'm in the middle of a project, I just want to get it done. And I often think, how long is it going to take me to finish? Sometimes I wonder, am I going to finish a project? Am I going to finish this sermon? Am I going to finish the week? Anything can happen, but most importantly, the Lord can decide to come back. And I promise you, if the Lord were to call us home this morning, I'm good. I do not need to finish this sermon because there's no point. If he were to come today, I have nothing to share. But he is coming again, amen? The only way to prepare yourself for that eventuality is to surrender your life to Jesus Christ. That is the only preparation that counts for anything. And John goes on to testify to this revelation. So those are the words that Jesus gave to John, but John is quoting, Behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. And that's a promise of blessing. There are many in this book. But John says, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I had heard and seen them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel or the messenger who had been showing them to me, but he said to me, do not do it. I am a fellow servant with you and with your brothers, the prophets, and of all who keep, notice keep or obey the words of this book, worship God. Now, I just want to deviate for a second because the final exhortation here is worship God. Worship God. It's an imperative. It's a command. This can be done in a number of different ways. We can worship the Lord through giving. We can worship the Lord through song. We can worship the Lord through service. We can worship the Lord through the study of his word, through prayer. We do all of these things here at Calvary Chapel because ultimately this is a house of worship. That is the worship of God and his son Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. So one of the litmus tests we have here is what we're doing an act of worship. There are many good things we can do. We could have a volleyball tournament. And you know something? I like volleyball. I like volleyball tournaments. And they're fun. And there's nothing wrong with them. 
But I look at an activity like that and I think, well, that's just fun. That's not worship. Oh, but Pastor Tim, when we're hitting the ball and we're spiking, we're praying, it's, it's an act. Well, listen, I understand that everything in life, God is at the center of everything we do. But you can justify all sorts of social activities that really aren't acts of worship. Worship God. Everything we do at church, at least, within ministry, should come back to, is this an act of worship? Now, remember, it's broad. It's not just singing, because if worship was just singing, then we do a lot of things that wouldn't be worship. But worship isn't just singing. It's an attitude of your heart. It means to surrender your life. So is your action an act of surrender? Is it submission? Is it serving God? See, there's a lot of things I like to do. Some of them are not spiritual. They're not bad. They're not good. They're just not spiritual. But make sure that at least in ministry and church, that everything we do is an act of worship. Worship God. But notice, worship God. You can also worship or surrender yourself to other things and other people. And unfortunately, in the moment, as John is testifying to this revelation of Jesus Christ... God having given this revelation to Jesus, Father to the Son, to show his servants what must soon take place, according to the very first part of the very first verse in this book. And then in the second part of that verse, chapter 1, verse 1, we learn that Jesus made it known by sending a messenger or an angel to his servant John. So we know that it came from God to Jesus to the angel to John. John having testified, this is the word of God. And confirming that this is the testimony of Jesus. Again, going back to the intro of this book in verse 2 of chapter 1, we know also from verse 3 of chapter 1 that there's a blessing, the result of reading, hearing, and applying this book's message. John told us that up front. He told us that these things were so, and that's how he received this revelation, and he confirmed, testifying to the word of God and confirming the testimony of Jesus is God's message and God's person. So John, in chapter 1, verse 2, told us that this revelation revealed God's message and his person, and that if we receive that revelation of God's message and his person from John, from the angel, from Jesus, from God the Father, then we will be blessed. And how does the blessing come to us? Well, faith comes by hearing the word of God, but the blessing comes from reading, hearing, and applying this book's message, specifically the book of Revelation. So I've given you a recap of the first three verses because here we are closing the book, and it goes back to the first three verses. The blessing, the blessing. It's a blessing to be prepared for Christ's imminent return. It's a blessing. When you know that the Lord is coming again and you're living your life circumspectly, that is looking at your life and the world around you, no matter how dark it gets, you know you're fine. You're good. The the one encouragement, and I don't mean to sound morose or, or so sad about this, but when I look at our world falling apart, our nation coming apart at the seams, and sometimes I'll be out in public and I look around and I And I think to myself, like, all of this, like, how much longer is this even going to last? I see, you know, I'm in the park or I'm at an event and I see all these beautiful families and all these things going on, uh, even outside the church. And I stop and I I pause and I think to myself, they're going to blow all this up. I mean, either literally or financially, they're going to destroy it all. I mean, the Bible tells us that eventually that's going to happen. And it breaks my heart. But then, but then I receive the comfort of the Holy Spirit because I know, Yeah, that's going to happen. But God told us it was going to happen. And when it happens, I'm prepared. Are you prepared? That's the best hope I can offer you. Not that the world isn't coming apart at the seams. But that when it does, you're going to land on your feet, so to speak. Or on your knees. Because you are going to find yourself in the presence of God. And so am I. Amen? Now, I don't actually wish for all that to happen this second. I do want the Lord to return for his church. I do want the Lord to return to rule and reign on the earth. But when I look at all the things that this revelation has revealed to us, I'm not so anxious for many of those things to happen, and yet they're necessary. But again, the comfort comes in knowing that when they do, 
God told us these things would happen in advance, so when they happen, we'll believe. Do you believe? Say amen. So that's the blessing. If you're looking for the, what was the blessing, Pastor Tim? You told us back in chapter 1, verse 3, we're going to receive a blessing, and I've been waiting for a check in the mail, and it didn't. No, listen, it's not that kind of blessing. The blessing that we receive is, as I've just described, your heart being prepared for Christ's return. That's the blessing. And unless you know, you won't be prepared. But if you're prepared, now you know. You know what's about to happen. So by reading, which we need to read the word of God, by reading, we'll understand God's plan. By understanding, because you can read and not understand, but by understanding, we're going to prepare ourselves for God's plan. Now, it's a blessing to understand the symbols, the many symbols that we've looked at in our studies that are used throughout the scriptures. So that when you see the woman in, in, uh, in chapter 12, it used to just be some kind of a weird picture in your mind. Now you understand the symbolism of Israel because we've taken the time to study, to read it, and now to understand it as well from the scriptures. It's a blessing to read this book and understand it because the time is nearer today than it was when John recorded this vision. So be blessed. I hope you're blessed. We've spent a year of our studies here on Sunday mornings going through this book, and I pray that you have received that blessing and have prepared your heart for his return. Now, also understanding all those symbols will help you understand all of the Bible. The entire scriptures will come to life through a study of the book of Revelation, and we've been blessed. Well, the next thing we had read was that John fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who had been showing this revelation to him. He got a little carried away. And we understand he got carried away, and unfortunately he got carried away because it was just so overwhelming. He's overcome by the things he had heard and seen, and he's now rebuked by the angel and told to worship God because it didn't look good. It wasn't, it wasn't a good look to be bowing down before an angel, even though I don't necessarily believe that John was worshiping like worshiping, worshiping the angel. The point is, worship means to bow down. So in this context, he was bowing down, clearly bowing down, before the angel, and it at least at the very minimum looked like he was bowing down to the angel. And so he's corrected, hey, don't do that. There's some people that worship others and worship angels and worship things and people other than God, and we're to worship God and him only. Amen? It is inappropriate for any of us to worship a fellow servant of God. Now, let me say this because I have seen in all types of churches varying different degrees of pastor worship. And I just want to comment on this briefly. I appreciate and respect the office or calling of a pastor so that when I'm at a church, I will refer to the pastor as a pastor when he's acting and working as a pastor. And I appreciate the respect uh, that people show me, that many of you, all of you actually show me, and that's great. But let me just be absolutely clear. That's just the calling that God has placed on my life. I'm a fellow servant with all of you. So one of the reasons that I'm not real big on this idea of like the clergy and the laity, you know, the, the pastor and the pastor's staff, you know, they get VIP seating. And, you know, this idea of treating people in ministry in such a VIP way to me, it's antithetical. It makes no sense to me because Jesus said the Son of Man came to serve not to be served, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So when Jesus walked the earth, he was a servant. Pastors should be servant. Listen, you show me a church leader that doesn't act like a servant, you'll see my back. That's me walking out. I won't entertain that folly, that foolishness of anyone thinking they're better than someone else just because God called them to do some act of service. People used to say, oh, you know, Tim, he's a minister. And I said, that's right. Do you know what the word minister means? Slave. Oh, Pastor Tim, don't use the word slave. That triggers me in today's culture. Today you say slave and it brings all images to my mind. Get over it. A slave, a bondservant. So are you. We serve each other. Amen? So let's move on. 
fellow servants. That's what we are, fellow servants. Angels, John, prophets, all those that keep the words of this book are servants of God. And you're no better or worse than anyone else. And only God is worthy of our worship. Now, John is told by the angel something very interesting. Look at verses 10 and 11. We read in verses 10 and 11, Then he told me, that is, the angel told me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, because the time is near. Let him who does wrong continue to do wrong. And let him who is vile continue to be vile. And let him who does right continue to do right. And let him who is holy continue to be holy. Now, that doesn't say continue to sin. If you read it there, that, that's not the content. I'll explain in a minute, but it's just like, People are going to do what they're going to do. That's, that's a New Jersey translation. The, the NJV. People are going to do what they're going to do. What are you going to do? Forget about it. So what you have is a, an encouragement to just relax, continue to do the right thing. Other people aren't going to do the right thing. It's not... God telling us through his word, oh, continue to be vile, you know, continue to be, uh, to do the wrong thing, you know. I, I can honestly tell you, there's no place in God's word where he would ever encourage you to sin. But notice the sealing up. That's very interesting. Because Daniel, when he received his vision, a couple hundred years, maybe six years before John wrote, Daniel was told to close up and seal the words of his scroll until the time of the end in Daniel chapter 12, verse 4. He was specifically told, seal it up. Now, he was instructed to keep his revelation secret until the time of the end and that when that time of the end was closer. Now, it's interesting. We, if you remember, in preparation for studying the book of Revelation, we studied the book of Daniel first. And I mentioned that when we studied chapter 12, it wasn't time to even begin to try to understand the prophecies of the book of Daniel. So many times people would study the book of Daniel, they go through chapters 1 through 6, and then they get to chapter 7, and they make their way through 12, and they read it, and they have no clue what's going on. Now because of the book of Revelation and the New Testament, we can understand it, but back when Daniel wrote it, it was kind of written to be put on a shelf, believe it or not, for some period of time until it was nearer to the events that we've already studied about. So John was told that the time was already near, in about 95 AD, it's about 1900 years ago, and the time was near then. So how much nearer is the time now? John was told that some will continue to do wrong and be vile until the time of the end, and some will continue to do right. And be holy until the time of the end. Does that not accurately describe the world in which we live? It's exactly where we're living right now. Oh, the world is so horrible. It's as horrible as it's always been. We have this perception that it was the good old days, that things were always so much better. Everyone was a Christian five years ago. No, there were a lot of people in church. I wouldn't say everyone who went to church was a Christian. I would say that today there's a better chance that those percentages are much higher following COVID. I think more people in church actually love God and are worshiping God today than they were. As a consequence, many churches have closed and are much smaller than they used to be. Am I okay with that? Fine. We're actually not. We're not smaller. So that's just what happens. It's God's work. Who knows? I don't know. I don't even know what I'm doing, let alone what God's doing. So what do you do? What do you do with that? Well, listen. We know that as of today to the moment that Christ returns for his church, people will continue to do horrible things. And if you don't believe that, you can read your newspaper. Every time I read the newspaper online, half the stories are of vile and disgusting things that people do to one another. They do wrong and vile things. I think I mentioned this when we studied this word recently, that that word vile means a stench. It's used to describe somebody that stinks, literally. And that vile behavior stinks in the sight of God. So, Jesus now, again, promises that those that read this revelation 
will know the truth that he's coming soon. Remember, not only will people continue to do wrong and do vile things, but they're going to continue to do right things and holy things. That is, God's people will continue to do the right thing. Are you doing the right thing? Say amen. You're here in church. Are you doing the right thing? Amen. So we are still on this planet. We are still here together. And I know we're not perfect, but we are doing our best to do the right thing, hopefully. And we're hopefully, as it says here, trying to live holy. Now, if you're thinking you can't achieve holiness, you're right. But that's not what that means. The Bible tells us, Peter tells us, be holy as I am holy. That, that's a quote from God. What does God mean? The word holy means sanctified or separated. So doing the right thing shouldn't be that difficult for us. We know the word, so we know what's right. So do what's right. Being holy shouldn't be that difficult either, believe it or not, because while we are certainly sinful, we know what it is to live separated lives to God. To be holy is to be separate. Think of a vessel that was used in the temple. It was sacred. It was holy. It was no better or worse than the vessel that they used outside the temple. The only difference is this one is used for holy purposes. So you can be a vessel of wood or gold or silver. It really doesn't matter. But if you say, you know what, this is a special cup. I only use this cup for worshiping God, then it's a sacred, separated, holy article of worship. That's you. That's me. All we are is the same as everybody else, except we're trying to do the right thing, and we live our lives separated to God. Amen? That actually doesn't sound too difficult. Oh, the Christian life in this world is so difficult. Really? Because I don't really think it is if you love God and you know his word. I really don't. Is it difficult to be like God and perfect? No, it's impossible. It's not difficult. It's impossible. That's not even the goal. The goal is to do the right thing and simply live our lives separate from the world that is so corrupt. And if we do that, we'll please God when he returns. Amen? And please God as we worship him. Okay, so uh, let's get right into this here. Verse 12 Behold, I am coming soon. That's not the first time we've heard that in this study. Going back to verse 7. Behold, I am coming soon. Maybe the text is given to us in this way and that Jesus is being quoted a number of times saying the same thing, so we'll get the point. Jesus is coming soon. Amen? Notice my reward or my blessing is with me, and I will give to everyone according to what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, and the beginning and the end. Now, there's a lot in there. First off, in verse 12, Jesus is going to reward and give everyone according to what he or she has done. Now, you can look at that and you can say, well, I don't want to get what I deserve. That's not what it's saying. It's not what it's saying. Although it's true, he's going to judge the living and the dead. So if you reject Christ, you will be judged by all that you've done. But if you've given your life to Jesus Christ, you will be judged by what you've done with Jesus Christ. Remember, Pontius Pilate came out and he said to the crowds, what will you have me do with this man, Jesus Christ? And what have you done with Jesus Christ? Have you received him as your Lord and Savior? Have you given your life to him? Have you worshipped him and surrendered your heart to him? Because if you've done that, then I want to look at these words differently. My reward is with me and I will give to everyone according to what he has done. And that means you'll be judged in the presence of God, righteous and holy in Jesus Christ, even though you're not. Amen? Am I the only one that's excited about this? This is good news. This is the good news. Now, all will be judged by what they have done while they lived on the earth. That is, if we do the right things, we're going to be rewarded by God. Separate and apart from salvation, if you do the right things, you're going to be rewarded by God in this life and in the next. Now, this means not just dead works, but allowing Christ to work through our hearts and lives. And the reward is in the doing the right thing, but it's also the reward that we'll receive in the presence of Christ for all eternity. And the only way to receive his reward is by having faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ, not in your works not in your good deeds, not in any of the things we've actually talked about, not even in being separate or holy, 
Those are the consequences of being saved, not the requirements for being saved. Are you with me? Remember the court, uh, the, excuse me, the horse and the cart? The horse and the cart, where do you put it? You can't put the works first. Faith works. Faith works. I feel like if you put it in that order, everything makes sense. I know it does. Now, we can be confident that God will finish what he started in us. In fact, Paul tells us in Philippians 1.6 that he who began a good work will be faithful to complete it until that day that Jesus Christ returns. So you know that truth. And Jesus declared himself, by the way, in this quote, to be the eternal creator. Not just some man, but the eternal creator. The alpha and the omega are the first and the last letters of the Greek alphabet. So therefore, he's saying, again, I'm the first and the last. And he literally says he's the first and the last. He's the one who suffered, died, and rose again. He's the one who rose first. But he's the first and the last, the beginning and the end. In fact, he's the beginning and the end of all creation. He was there at the beginning. He'll be there at the end. He is without beginning. He is without end. That's, that's what that means. He's simply saying, by the way, you're looking for God. I am. Now, in verse 14, we read, Blessed are those, more blessings. This chapter is all about blessings. Blessed are those who wash their robes, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. Outside are are the dogs, those who practice magical arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Now in those verses there, washing your robes, these are symbols that the Jews would have understood, that Greeks would have understood, that we can understand. Washing your robes, those that wash their robes are blessed. This means being made clean by receiving the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Now, sometimes it's a robe of linen. Sometimes we're told to put on Christ as a garment. But the garment is always a symbol of righteousness. In fact, Isaiah used that same symbol when he said, our righteousness is as filthy rags. But here, the analogy is a little different. Wash your robes is the same idea as putting on the robe of of Christ's righteousness. It's this idea that you're made clean by receiving Jesus Christ. And I can't help but think of this verse which is really one of my favorite verses because it says it all. If you're worried this morning because you came in here like I did, a sinner, let me reassure you, John tells us in 1 John chapter 1, verse 8, that if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. That would be washing your robes. The idea of being forgiven in Jesus Christ. And there's a blessing. A blessing if you wash your robes. Something else that's said here, there's a few things actually. I've mentioned already, and I want to repeat this, the only way to be made righteous, the only way to be made, the only way to be made righteous is to surrender your life to Jesus Christ. Amen? No other way to be saved. It's that simple. This isn't multiple choice, all of the above. There's one answer, and the answer is Jesus Christ. The righteous will have, as it says here, another symbol, which we unpacked two weeks ago. The righteous may have the right to the tree of life, and they can go through the gates into the holy city. Now, I refer you back to the previous chapter, which described the tree of life and... The holy city that was described in the uh, all of chapter 21 and then into chapter 22. So we've already looked at that, but as a reminder, the tree of life represents God's provision of eternal life through His precious Son. That's the tree of life, eternal life. Same same idea, just a symbol that represents the same thing. Now the gates, the gates were the gates of the city of New Jerusalem. The gates represent access to God the Father through God the Son, who He Himself said, "I am the door, or I am the gate." So all these symbols point to Jesus. After all, it is the revelation of Jesus Christ. So, eternal life, access to God the Father, that is our blessing and our reward. We already have received eternal life in our spirits, but one day, physically, we'll have eternal life. That's when we're raised to life incorruptible. That hasn't happened yet. 
As good as I look, I'm telling you, it hasn't happened yet. We live in a fallen world. We're dying slowly. And one day we won't be here. But one day God is going to give us new bodies, resurrected bodies. And when you look in the mirror, you're going to like what you see. If they have mirrors. Well, there's a sea of glass. So all that I can say about this, these are good, encouraging things to remember. Um, You have access to the tree of life. You can enter the presence of God. But here's the bad news. And with the good news, there's always the bad news. The good news is for us who believe in Christ. The not-so-good news, let's call it that, doesn't have to be bad news. I guess when people make their decisions, there are consequences. Is that the wicked will be outside the city, cast into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. They will not be allowed in God's presence. They will not receive eternal life in the sense that they'll have eternal blessing. They will have eternal death. So eternal life versus eternal death. But people don't just go off into oblivion. I'm going to say something. I said this to somebody recently. I don't remember where. But if you told me that when I died, like the Jehovah Witnesses believe, that I just die and I go into oblivion, what motivation would there be for me to do anything remotely holy? What motivation would there be for me to do the right thing? I mean, if I really believe that when I die, I just, poof, no longer exist, and I just, that's it, that's all there is, I would live like, oh, like 85% of this culture. Maybe now I understand why people are marching in the streets, celebrating their sin. Rather than being revolted and disgusted by their behavior, can I encourage you? Pity them. They're celebrating sin and evil and vile behavior because they don't believe there's anything for them after death. If you've ever asked yourself the question, how can people do this or do that? How could anyone? It's very simple. If you really believe there's no eternal judgment, then you might as well kick off your heels and do whatever the heck you want. And now we understand the mantra of progressive liberalism. Why wouldn't you do whatever makes you feel good and whatever you want to do if there's nothing for us after we die? And now you begin to understand, though, there's something, there's something, there's something I want to mention. Within each of us, God has given us a conscience. And all of us, deep down inside, know we're made in the image of God. Our cells remember, even if we have refuse to acknowledge it. And so here's what happens to the person who is wicked. They believe nothing's going to happen. They're going to go into oblivion, or maybe they believe they live in paradise regardless of their consequences, but whatever it is, they have to drown out that little voice somewhere deep inside that tells them that what they're doing is wrong. And now you begin to understand why they need to go out into the streets, why they need everybody on the planet Earth to acknowledge and affirm them in their behavior. Because to be honest with you, I'm going to do what I'm going to do. I don't need you to approve or affirm me. I'm a Christian. No one approves of what I do in this world, hardly. Most of the world doesn't even want to look at me or or they want me to die. They'll be happy when the rapture comes because I won't be here. But do you understand, as Shakespeare said or wrote, thou doth protest too much. You see, when we protest against what we believe to be right, but know it deep, deep, deep down inside is wrong, we look like that, exactly like people running up and down the streets of Sodom, proclaiming their behavior to be acceptable and right, and that we're wrong to, de- to, to defy their way of living. It's not enough It's not enough for them to do what they want to do in a free country. They want you to have to say it's okay. Now, why have I gone to this great degree? Because they have no hope. Of course they think this way. So this is where we come in. The best thing you can do is echo the little voice of God in their hearts. 
Because deep down inside, they know it's wrong. And if you lovingly say to people who are living in sin, two things, very important, two things, very important. The fact that they are loved by God unconditionally and the fact that their behavior is wrong unmistakably. See what I did there? God's unconditional love, the unmistakable truth. You have to give them both. It isn't enough to just give them one or the other. You tell the truth in love. They need to know that there's no way in the world that their behavior is right before God. But they know, they need to know that there's no way that God doesn't love them in their sin. Can you do that? Or are you just interested in battering them over the head with the truth? Or are you interested, oh, we just love everybody. We love everybody. Yes, God loves unconditionally. But the truth is unmistakable. And unless you're giving them both, say nothing. You'll do damage to the cause of Christ and to their very immortal souls. Well, that's where we come in. To share the truth in love. And if we do this, some of those people celebrating their sin might listen to the voice of God working in their hearts through the power of the Holy Spirit and surrender and repent and be saved, and then they won't be outside the city. But as it stands right here and now, understand this about the wicked, they will be outside. They will not be in the presence of God for all eternity. They're going to be cast into the lake of burning sulfur. Outside of eternal life in Jesus, there is only eternal death apart from Jesus. This is the second death, the eternal judgment for unrepentant sinners who reject Christ. This is serious business. They're called dogs. The word for dogs means those with impure minds. We would say pigs in our culture. In theirs, it's dogs. Same idea. Those that are bold, offensively bold, disrespectful, shameless, and immodest. Plenty of those people running around in our world today. Also, those who practice magical arts or magic arts. We've shared this when we were in the previous study. The Greek is pharmakos. It means those who use drugs. To practice sorcery was to use drugs to create altered states of consciousness and create your reality. Religious experiences through drugs. Now listen, let me be clear. Drugs have saved lives, including mine. If it weren't for antibiotics, you wouldn't be listening to this sermon this morning. Many times over. There's a time and a place to receive medication when it's appropriate and prescribed by a doctor and administered properly. But when we take those things that are beneficial, like prescription drugs and abuse them, or illicit illegal drugs or recreational drug use, and we use it to create our own reality or our religious experience, we are sorcerers. The very definition of the word. Sorcery is that exact thing. In fact, many indigenous people groups, how's that for woke? Many indigenous people groups use these drugs to create their experiences. And today, all different types of people groups have followed suit. In fact, there's a great interest now in indigenous peoples, and part of that has to do with these sweat lodges and these magic mushrooms and all these types of things that cause people to hallucinate. Because if you can't see God, take some mushrooms, you'll see God. You'll see all sorts of things. They won't be real, but you will have become a sorcerer. The sexually immoral sell their bodies and indulge in inappropriate sexual relationships. No, we don't have any of that today. That's sarcasm. You are in New Jersey. Murderers. We know a murderer is. We read the paper every day. Someone's murdering somebody. When you intentionally take a life, you're a murderer. Idolaters are those that worship false gods and love money. A lot of that going on. Those who love and practice falsehoods, very simple, liars. They're deceitful, false, and bear false witness. So that's a list of the people that came to church today. Did pastor just say that? Well, I don't know. 
I look at this, and I think that maybe that describes some of us before we came to Christ, and maybe we struggle with some of those things since we've come to Christ. But remember what I said about being holy? You're the vessel that's put aside, but you're no better than anybody else. You, like anyone else, stink. Don't take a shower for three days, you'll stink. Your life is no better than the person walking up and down the street celebrating their sin. The difference is you've done something right. You gave your life to Jesus Christ, and you know what else? You're set apart by him. Can I hear a nice amen? Amen. Thank you. Now, Jesus testifies to this revelation of himself and to the churches in verse 16 when he writes, when John writes and quotes Jesus, I, Jesus, have sent my messenger, my angel, to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star, the bright morning star. That is a beautiful description of Jesus. You see, the Lord God, again, sent his angel to give his servants the testimony, not only about the things to come, but in chapters 2 and 3 in the book of Revelation, about the church. And we're told Jesus is the root and the offspring of David. You know what I love about that description? The promised Messiah to Israel is the root and the offspring of David. This is about Jesus being the Messiah. But notice, as the root of David, he's the son of God, the root of David. That is, he, became bef- he came before David. How is that possible? He's the son of David. Yes, and yes. He's the root of David as he is the son of God. But he's the offspring of David because he became a man. He's the son of man, son of God, son of man. And that's what we learn there. That's what Jesus tells us about himself. Then he goes on to tell us he's the bright morning star. That is the promised revelation of God to mankind, the light of the world. We talked about that. This is a recap of a lot of the things we talked about. Now, the morning star in this context refers to the bright glory of the planet Venus, visible in the early morning, uh, generally in the western sky. Uh, If you look in the sky and you see the moon, that is the brightest object in the night sky. The brightest other, if it's in the sky, at the time you look, Venus is the second brightest object in the night sky. And then Jupiter would be the third. So the bright planet Venus that they refer to as a star is the morning star. Why would Jesus use this analogy? Jesus is the morning star. He enlightens us with his glory and his truth. He is the light of the world in a dark night. Amen? Verse 17, the spirit and the bride say, come. Who's the bride? Who's the bride? Raise your hand if you're the bride. The bride of Jesus Christ. It's us. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let him who hears say, come. Whoever is thirsty, are you thirsty? Amen? Are you thirsty? We'll work on it. Are you thirsty? Let him come, and whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. That's the invitation to us. That invitation is a beautiful invitation to come and receive all that God has for you. The Holy Spirit and all of his saints invite those still undecided to come to Jesus. Is that what you're doing? Because those people marching up and down the street celebrating their sin need an invitation. (gasps) We don't want them in our church. Let them go to another church. Really? There is only one church, the bride of Jesus Christ. And they're invited. And if they show up, you got to be okay with that. Let's pray they do. Anyone who hears God's call can come as all are invited. Whoever's thirsty and wishes to come can drink the water of life. Everybody gets thirsty eventually. I was working outside this last week. I don't know how much water and seltzer and sparkling water I drank a lot. I was thirsty. Are you thirsty? Because if you're thirsty, the water of life is a free gift available to all. Jesus is the water of life. He's the free gift of salvation, but only to those who believe. He's the water of life that brings salvation. You'll, you'll die of thirst, spiritual thirst without him. And then we have the river of the water of life, which represents the presence of God, the Holy Spirit 
in the holy city. We saw in our study last time together. The Holy Spirit is described by Jesus as streams of living water in the Gospel of John. The Holy Spirit is the pure divine person from God the Father and God the Son, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Then we read in verse 18, a warning, a warning to anyone. I warn everyone, everyone, who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds anything to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. That is, he'll receive the judgment of God. And if anyone takes the words away, anyone who takes words away from this book of prophecy, God will take away from him his share in the tree of life, which is eternal life, and in the holy city, separation to God's presence, which are described in this book. So that's pretty clear, right? pretty clear. Those that add anything to this book will suffer the judgment of God. Those that take words away will lose their share in the blessings described in this book, the tree of life, God's provision, the holy city, the place prepared by God in heaven for you. If Jesus wasn't going to do it, he wouldn't have told you in John's gospel chapter 14. It's recorded unless he was going to go and prepare a place for you, which he has done. Amen. And we see it in this vision. Eternal life through his precious son. Those that try to alter this revelation or the gospel in any or any of the word of God will be judged. Will be judged. Those that suggest Christ's salvation is inadequate, unnecessary, or untrue, reject his salvation and they'll be outside the city. Stakes are high here, brothers and sisters. John testifies finally to Jesus' promise to those that read this revelation that he is coming soon. And as we close, ask Rachel to come up, if she wouldn't mind, just to close us quickly. Just a few verses. Eda as well. He who testifies to these things says, yes, 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 I am coming soon. Amen. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. And John ends this vision with his own words. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. He's coming soon. Jesus testifies to this revelation of himself. Promises that he's coming soon. And John just confirms that the revelation is true. Praying that the Lord Jesus would come quickly. John closes this book by praying that the grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. May he be with all people before it's too late. He's coming soon. Lord Heavenly Father, thank you for this precious study in your word. Thank you for this precious chapter in this book. We pray that we would be prepared. We've heard the gospel. Now it's a matter of choice. You've given us the right to the tree of life. But we have to exercise that right to come before you, to be holy. Oh, Lord, help us to respond through surrender to your word. Spend eternity with you in your presence. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.